0: If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And as you do, I just want to give the same encouragement I gave in the first service because I think this is the message that we're going to put on the podcast. And so I want it to be on the message on the podcast, which is we're going to come back from COVID. We're going to come back strong. And that means uh, physical affection. And I'd like for us all to start with Pastor Matt because as you could tell, he is clearly in some kind of a funk when it comes to announcements. He is feeling beat down by the parking lot debacle. So if there's one way that you can make it up for him, it would be just as much hugging, as you're comfortable with when you see him. And if he fights it, and if he's kind of rigid, like he doesn't want it, just you can do it. You can, you can, you know, like in those scenes in movies where like like, like the person goes in for the hug and they're fighting it, and then they like give in, you know, that's how it's probably gonna go. But don't read that the wrong way, keep going. I think we can do it, and we can start with Pastor Matt. He's, he has had a, a I, I would say, you know, objectively, and, and, you know, and we're friends, so I can say this, that, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that, 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 that those were the most, You know, persuasive and exciting uh, ways to to encourage us to to come to some things, but he's beat down, you know, so uh, he needs us to be there for him. Okay, so that was just to give you some time to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Um, I've been thinking a lot this week about the civil rights movement, and I've been thinking about it a lot because of um, what was accomplished at this time in the American South by a group of people who were strategic about acting when other people would not act, but more specifically, not acting or reacting when most other people would. Um, This tremendous amount of change happened in our nation, um, and it happened because of people doing things that were counterintuitive, To what most other people would do. That is what we're looking at this morning when we look at David and Saul. We're looking at what it looks like to be people who trust God, who have faith in the way that we live our daily lives, and how doing that looks so different from uh, what many would otherwise do. Um, I'm really proud of myself this week. There's there's blanks to fill in uh, in the in the bulletin, which is I'm very excited about that. If you're a blank filling in person, you're so happy. You probably already tried to fill them in. Uh, don't do that because, um, you know, there's a lot of, th- they're pretty vague. There's a lot of things that those 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 blanks could be. So, um, And for the kids, you can just do the, the Mad Libs thing and just put whatever you want. Um, either way, I'm probably going to mess up my slides and it'll all be confusing. So um, so turn to First Samuel 24, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, David, who is now hiding in a cave in one of the most well-known narratives, one of the most well-known accounts, events in 1 Samuel, uh, in the life of David and Saul together. We're going to read the first few verses, and, um, and then we're going to stop and, and, and talk about them. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 7 is what we're going to read first, and I'll put them up on the screen. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of, my, uh, of Saul's robe, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. We're going to stop right there. Saul has been pursuing David for quite a while now. David has gathered more men uh, with him, and he now has gone from just him to him in 400 to him in 600. And they are hiding in these caves, and Saul has literally stumbled upon him. Now, as this happens, David's men point out to him something that is very true. They say, this is what God told you would happen, that your enemy would be given into your hand to do sort of as you will with him. And so David sneaks up behind Saul as it says he's relieving himself, in case you're curious. Yes, there are only two instances, uh, references made to relieving yourself in the Bible. I did look that up this week. And, um, and if you want to know the next one, we have to do a series through 1 Kings and it takes a while to get to it and it's maybe not as worth it as this one. So just trust me on that. Um, he goes in to relieve himself, thus making himself totally vulnerable. David is behind him with a knife that is so sharp he can cut off the edge of his robe without even being seen and caught. David's men point out to him that God has finally ended their suffering and delivered his enemy into his hand, and David decides to, instead of killing Saul, to tear his robe to cut off a corner of it. Now, what he does in cutting it off is is pretty significant. David probably didn't know that what he was doing was so significant. Uh, he was doing this uh, and he immediately felt guilty about it. It says his heart is struck because he did this thing that he even got that close and did what he did out of sort of maybe his arrogance. But it, it's, it's interesting and it's important that this happens because this idea of the tearing of robe is actually something that comes up in the Old Testament and it means something. It has to do with a king losing control over the nation, over his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel, the prophet. The guy the book's named after, he is like walking away from Saul at a point when Saul's upset with him and Saul grabs his robe and it tears. And this is what we read happens. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Ouch. So uh, the tearing of the robe symbolizes the, the taking away, the tearing away, literally tearing away. You did not give it up. Saul is not interested in giving up being king or the authority of the anointing over the people. And yet, Samuel points out to him, that's exactly what's happening, is it's being taken from you forcibly from God, by God. We, we read elsewhere in, uh, in 1 Kings. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. This is the division of the kingdom. This is a big deal. And again, what we read about here is this tearing of robe. It's used as a symbol to show what it means for God's nation itself to be split, but also for it to come away from the hands of the king. As a king, you don't want to lose your nation because God ripped it away from you. And yet, this is exactly what happens the moment that David cuts the corner of Saul's robe. Why? Because David does something there. It says that God has delivered his enemy into his hand, and now he has to act as he sees fit. And what does David do? What he chooses to do is so radically different from what anyone else in the situation would do that it perfectly reflects what it looks like to be a person who actually trusts God. And like I said, that's kind of what we're looking at this morning. I want to look at two things about what it looks like to trust God and the two things about what faith looks like as well, which are essentially the same thing, to trust God is to have faith. The first is what we see happen here with David. David is in a situation where he's finally uh, gotten his enemy delivered into his hand. All he has to do with one swipe of his sword or his knife is to kill Saul. Problem's over. He gets to become king. I mean, probably could happen he could become king because Jonathan, the, the, the son of the king, the one who would next become king, is David's best friend and has himself acknowledged that you're the rightful king. So he could kill Saul and he could probably make a pretty good case and know that the, the son of the king would back him up and that he could step into that position. And so as God has perfectly handed him a situation in which all he needs to do, after all of this running and hiding, is be the man that he was when he defeated Goliath. Be the man with the courage to stand up and to act and to do the thing that will change everything. For David, who trusts in God, the choice is totally different. So the first thing that trusting in God is, sometimes, is this. It is holding back when you can act. And this is not something that we normally associate with trusting God. Trusting God is often holding back in a situation that God has presented to you or that you find yourself in where you could take action. That if I trust in who God is and what he says about himself and that he is in control, I will not have to take action in this situation when I totally would be justified in doing so. That is often what trust looks like. It's not always what trust looks like. But the question then we ask ourselves, is do I trust God enough to to, to not take action even when I could? Do I trust God enough not to step up and to do something when I have the opportunity to do it, but instead to sit and to wait? When the blood gets hot, when the stakes get high, when a lot is on the line, When I'm right, and that's clear, and they're not, and that's clear, and I want to act. And yet, I know that to wait is what it is to trust in God. Do I do that thing? Can I do that thing? Very few people actually want for God to be in control of our lives. Very few Christians actually really want for God to be in control of their life. You like the idea of God being in control when things don't go your way and and you start to suffer and lose things and you want to be able to trust that God's got you covered. But for the good parts of life, for most of life, in any situation where you yourself could be in control, where you have the ability to be in control, you would have to really, really trust God in order to let him do something instead of you. And this is exactly what David chooses to do. When his enemy is delivered into his hand, his response is to wait, to sit at the total confusion of all of the men who follow him. Sometimes sin is the things that we choose to do in need to control things, to act out of fear, out of anger, out of panic, out of a momentary, uh, brief period of not really trusting that God can do it Himself. For some, being silent means trusting God, and that's not an easy thing for us to do. David says in the Psalms, uh, many Psalms that he's written, from this very cave, in this very situation, he says these words, that the Lord is my defense and He is my refuge. A refuge is a place that you go. It is a place that protects you when you're not fighting. Okay, so if you're the one being attacked, what you need is a refuge. You need a place to be where you know that you'll be protected and you'll be safe. And if trusting God is not acting, then what that means is trusting God is trusting that he in those situations will be your refuge, will be your defense, will protect you even when you're not doing something yourself to defend yourself. You may be a person whose tendency is to act, is to take action, to speak up. In fact, that's even what you're good at in life, and people like that about you. That's maybe something that you're successful in. You're the person who steps in and makes things happen. That's your strength. Chances are, if that's the way you're wired, then trusting in God, one of the hardest things for you to do is to not act when you know that you could, because you believe that God has a bigger plan in mind. This is about control. It's about letting God still be in control even when he hasn't forced you to do that. And trust me when I say that if we only let God be in control when he forces us to, then he'll have to force you to. If if faith and trust means... Allowing God to have control even when you could otherwise have control, you might have a little more freedom in that. But if God's going to do something, and the only way to do it is to force you, then know that that's what's going to happen. And you may back yourself into that own corner because through a lack of faith and trust, it's too scary, it's too hard for you to say, I can sit and I can wait and I can know that God is doing something here. There are points when God's desire for you is to stop, to wait, to hold off, and not to do something even though you think it's deserved or justified. There are points when being faithful to God means simply lifting something up to him in prayer and saying, God, what is your will here? And then saying, I give this to you, God. I trust you with this. And this doesn't mean growing and grumbling about it after. Because what does David have to do here? As, as if this decision weren't hard enough, he now, I mean, how great, I mean, if this was a movie, which I often am thinking about this, these parts with David and Saul, because I'm thinking this would be great in a movie, right? This would be pretty incredible. We love, we love, people love revenge movies. They love the idea of like a person getting to like go after somebody and it's somehow sort of justified. And so this idea of of David choosing in this perfect moment, this perfect setup where God finally, look, he trusted in God, he trusted in God, he trusted in God, and now his enemy was delivered into his hands. This is going to be amazing the way he takes out Saul. What a letdown, right? What a boring, lame movie that all of a sudden he goes, no, I'm just going to wait, and I'm going to be merciful and gracious. Nobody's paying money to see merciful and gracious in a movie. Then... How amazing would it be, though, if he's like, but I I can't speak for these 600 guys. And even though they're huge losers, they can probably still do a lot of damage, right? But that's not what happens. Because instead, when his men, he knows they won't see the reason in what he's doing. And he says to them, you're not to harm him either. For a lot of, I can't tell you how many times in my life, I've tried to trust God in stepping away from something and saying, I know that you've got this, I don't have to. And then I've just grumbled and complained about it. Which is still a form of trying to be in control of the thing. And and so just like David has to make the case for why, no, no, no. This is not what I'm going to do. We are not going to act in this situation because we trust God. And we know that he is going to deal with Saul. Saul is his king. Saul is the one he has anointed. It is not my place to take this guy out even if God gives me the opportunity to do that. It makes sense if we are a people who trust God that we would be the people who could act but choose not to at times because we know that God is in control. Uh, There's an author who writes um, uh, in this book called, um, uh, well, in this book on essentially being civil with one another in things that we disagree on talks about this idea of our need to be patient and to recognize the speed at which God is working and why he is. And this is a quote from the book. Uh, He says in his book, Uncommon Decency, the Mennonites have a saying that we're living in the time of God's patience. For God's own good reasons, he has not yet ushered in the eternal kingdom. God is presently showing patience toward the human race, providing the unsaved with the opportunity to repent And the saved with the opportunity to learn the ways of obedience. The point that he's making in this is that he's saying, God goes a lot slower than we want him to. But this is the speed at which God usually works. We are always asking ourselves the question, why is God not fixing this problem right now? Why is, we not, why is he not ending that injustice? Why is he not ending this war? Why did that go on for this long? Why is my marriage suffering for this long? Why are my kids struggling for this long? Why does my job have to be like this? Why is this COVID thing still dragging on? We, we go, why? I mean, if God can, he would move more quickly. He must want me to speed things up. And this author's pointing out that God is doing something much bigger than just writing all the injustices that we see that affect our everyday life and this physical world that we live in. God is winning souls. God is sanctifying the saved. God is calling us to be holy and shaping us, and that takes time. So be patient. And for those who love the idea of getting things done in God's name, Slowing down and being patient is infuriating. This is what I'd call the you got to be kidding me part of the story, right? It's like, you've got to be kidding me. How on earth could we possibly know what we're supposed to do in situations if something like this happens and you're like, yeah, what? He's still not supposed to do anything? How could I ever possibly have any hope of knowing what it is that God actually wants me to do? What speed he wants me to move at? What choices he wants me to make? If in the situation like this, when you think it's so clearly laid out for David that he doesn't do what seems obvious, we'll wait till you see the next part because it gets even more confusing. If we go on to start reading in verse eight, we read this. Afterward, David also arose so he's been hiding, he's been waiting, he's decided that he's going to stay his hand. But then he chooses to act. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and bade homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen with the words, to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David's response then is the exact opposite because this is also what trust is. There are times when trusting God means holding back when you can act and there are times when trusting God means the exact opposite. What? Yes, it means acting When you can stay still, keep your head down, and hold back. I cannot imagine that it was easy for David at this point to stand up. It could not have been easy for him to stay his hand against Saul, and it could not have been easy for him after that to stand up defenseless, up against a guy who was a lot bigger and known for throwing spears, to wave a piece of his cloak in front of him and to say, I am not the one that you think I am. I trust God and I give myself to you. I surrender to you, basically. Do I trust God enough to be bold when it seems completely reasonable for me to hold back? Do I trust God enough to make myself act when it's the last thing that I want to do I can't help but imagine that David is crouched down in this cave having to psych himself up (laughs) to stand up and reveal that he's there he's got a speech prepared he's probably practicing it as he sits there thinking getting ready to stand up and do the very thing that he knows will completely put him right back in harm's way. If David trusts in God, then God is his refuge and his defense. So not only is God the refuge that protects him when he's hiding, God is the defense who is actually the one protecting him when he's fighting, when he stands out and puts himself in harm's way. When he sticks his neck out, he can do it because he knows that God's going to protect him. And you can talk about God and all the trust you might have for him, and you might think that you have trust for God because you're really good at being reasonable and calm and patient and not messing things up by getting involved like everybody else seems to be doing all the time, and not trust God enough to stick your neck out in situations where he's calling you to do that. David trusts that God is his defense. Saul is pretty bad at this pursuing David thing. To be fair, God's not on his side. So it makes sense that it's not working out. But he is failing every step of the way. But Saul can fail because he's a king. He's got all the guys fighting for him that he wants. He's got all the spies looking out for him that he wants. He's got all the servants that he could ever need. And if he fails to find David, if he blows it, if he does something wrong, he'll just get up tomorrow and go mess up again because he's the king and he can do it all day. David has none of that. For David to step up and to act really means trusting that God is going to be there for him when he does that. And for many of us, that's what trusting God looks like. Instead of holding back, which might be easiest for us, is to say, I have to act. I have to be bold. I have to speak. I have to do something that's uncomfortable for me. I've had, um, in the same way, this author who talks about Uh, what it is to be patient also talks about what it is to be faithful in some of the most radical ways and that what it means to get up and to act out our faith in the most radical ways is often so mundane that you would miss it. He says this as well in his book. He says, God calls us to deal with the challenges before us and often our most radical challenges are very little ones. Many times the call to radical obedience may mean patiently listening to someone who is boring or irritating or treating a fellow sinner with charity that it is not easy to muster. That's just, those are just two examples of how stepping out and acting in faith usually involves smaller things than we think. I have talked to so many people who um, th- these last few messages... Um, about Saul and David have been very eye-opening and convicting because we're at this time in life when it is so incredibly easy to focus on uh, the problems that we're facing right now and to focus on the people that we think are causing those problems. It is so easy. I mean, it is not hard. Anywhere you look, it is easy on any given day to say, I think we can all agree This person is making, is a problem. This person is making my life hard. This problem is something that we can't get away from. This is the reason why we can't do this. And this is the reason why I can't live the way that I want to over here. There are so many things that it feels like we're dealing with. That to hear that when David is being chased by a psychopathic, murdering, uh, spear-throwing giant guy and hiding in a cave, it's very eloquent, I know, that that even when that happens, that David doesn't actually see Saul as his enemy. And he doesn't even say or see that his problem is this thing. The biggest problem in David's life is that he's just trying to figure out what God's will is so that he can do that thing. I talked to so many people who were like, man, that is really convicting. To recognize that this isn't really about focusing on the problems in front of us right now, but about saying what is God doing in me to shape me in the very same way that God was doing something in David. The moment that David chose not to kill Saul, but to cut off the edge of his robe, David graduated from the university that God had put him in, the school that God had taken him to, in which God was wanting to shape David into being somebody who was not gonna be Saul part two, but he was gonna be a new king, a better king. And the only way that David could become that person wasn't to be brave enough to defeat Goliath, If it had started after that, he would have been just like Saul. It was to be the guy who God worked on and shaped through this trial and the suffering. I talk to so many people who are like, man, thinking about what it is that God might be doing in me in this time instead of focusing on the problems that I'm dealing with, instead of focusing on how to fix it right away and get past it, but instead asking what God's doing is a really hard and convicting thing to ask. But when we talk about stepping out and acting and being bold, when it's difficult to do so, I talk to a lot of people who feel like even some of the smallest, most basic choices and decisions in life right now involve faith. And I'm not just talking about people who are scared for their health and don't wanna do things right now. I'm saying like our lives have shut down to such a degree that for some of us, What it means to trust God and stick our neck back out is to literally go pursue a person and say, I want to hear your story because I want for you to know who Jesus is. We have become so closed off in our own lives and gotten so comfortable just in isolation that this going back out to people thing seems crazy to us. It's this thing that we'll procrastinate on forever. I believe that for many of us, what it looks like to actually stick our neck back out and to step out and to act when it would be so easy to just do nothing and call that reasonableness is to literally just invite someone to your home and share a meal with them and begin sharing life with them again. And I know that sounds like, are you you honestly comparing a murdering crazy king pursuing a person in a cave and having a dinner party with somebody? Yes, I am. Because the fear is fear And the the easy thing to do is the easy thing to do. And for many of us, what this looks like is not getting in another argument with another person, getting in another fight with another person, forming a new group of enemies to be against, but instead saying, how can I actually build a bridge with somebody, with some people that has begun to dissolve over this last year, even though I know that that could harm me? Faith and acting when you want to sit still and be silent and be reasonable and not get involved in a mess is saying, um, I'm going to go to someone who could be my enemy and be in a relationship with that person knowing that that enemy can harm me because I trust God and he's my defense. Now, if you think this is confusing and you go, how on earth could you know one or the other? How on earth could we know when we're supposed to uh, step in and act and when we're supposed to lay low and be patient and give things over to God, let go and let God? Uh, What that reveals about us, that angst that we feel, tells us something about what it is to have faith and how frustrating it is sometimes. Um, There's two things about faith that I think we see in this, and it's something that we have to deal with and we have to embrace if we truly want to be people who live lives of faith. The first one is this, faith has no cruise control. I was going to say Faith has no autopilot, but I don't know anybody who's a pilot here, and I don't really even know what autopilot does, to be honest. Completely know what it does. You know, I mean, I know what it does, but not know what it does. I know how cruise control works, at least I'm pretty sure. All right, you ever been on a trip in your car, and you're just like, man, I really want to turn on cruise control. I've been on this, and then you turn it on, and then you set it, and then it's just like, oh, wait, there's a car in front of me. They're slowing down. Okay, I got to take it off. And then you got to put it back on, and you got to take it back off. And you're just like, can I just please cruise for a while, please? This is the Christian life. This is our life. We want more than anything to pick a speed and to set that speed and to go, this is how it's going to look to follow God. And instead, when you look at what David's doing in this situation, you go, he's constantly changing speeds, and this is actually what it means to be someone who follows God. To live a life of faith is to say, in every situation, God, what is the speed that I go, to, that I go at right now? It is never picking one and going with it and saying that's how it is. And here's why we love doing that because some of us like to go fast and some of us like to act and some of us like to be in control and some of us don't like to do that. We see ourselves as the reasonable, calm, level-headed ones that don't make messes out of everything and the world needs us, right? To smooth everything over. And then we got these people. We, if the world wasn't for us, the world would never get anything done and nobody would ever win anything and nobody would ever decide anything and the bad guys would always conquer and everything. We want to pick a speed. We want to play to our strengths and say, this is who I am, and so I'm going to run this way. That's what God wants out of me in this life. It was hard for the disciples to follow Jesus because the speed kept changing. And it's not because Jesus was indecisive. It's because trusting God means stopping and saying, God, what does it look like to follow you in this thing right now? That's not something that we're inclined to do. Self-reflection is not something that we're generally pretty good at. If you want to know what this looks like, uh, I was, this probably seems like a super random example. If you've ever been involved in an intervention, you know, I hope that you haven't, because interventions are really hard. They're really messy things. But when a family, it's almost always a family, when a family is involved in an intervention, you see something happen that you don't see happen other times. Because everyone is so, hopefully by the way, everyone is so desperate out of love to see a person get better, that everybody has to come together and go, this isn't just going to happen the way I do things. The people that want to take charge are going to have to reevaluate the people that wanna sit back and not say anything and not get involved are gonna to have to reevaluate because everyone has to come together and say, how do we collectively help this person because what we care about is the end result of what happens. Now, really, that's kind of how family is with everything, right? You have a wedding, you have a funeral, you have everything. People get together and it's like, this is how he always is and this is how she always is and this is how they always are. And That's the thing with families. We get stuck in these roles all the time. But when the stakes are truly life or death, we can change. We can stop and we can go, the last thing I ever want to do is tell this person how their actions are hurting me because I just don't think I can do that. But I think it may be the only way for them to see. The last thing that I want to do is to just take it easy and not take charge right now but I think that might be the only way for this to work. We can do this when we need to. We're capable of it. This is what it is to live a life of faith because we believe that God's in control and we're the people who can do things differently, who can stop and ask ourselves, God, what's the speed you want me to go? We wish there was cruise control. We wish we could go the same speed all the time, but that just isn't the way that faith works. God is going to tell those of you who don't like making waves to make waves. And he's going to tell those of you who like to make waves to zip it and just take a break. And he's going to tell those of you who are reasonable and calm and patient all the time to get messy and to be assertive and to be bold. And he's going to tell those of you who don't like that, who don't like being patient, who don't like waiting, who don't like saying, God, your will be done. He's going to tell you to just trust him and give it over to him and to wait. The other thing that we see a life of faith looking like is that it takes some explaining. When David chooses to do this thing, his guys are like, what on earth are you doing? And we see this happening throughout the Bible we see that when a person is is actually living a life of faith in God and not just doing what makes sense in the moment with the data that's been given to them and the situation they're in, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there's a lot of time that has to be spent explaining it. And that's not a bad thing. I think we often think that if you have to explain it, then that probably means that it's not good or something, that things should be so self-evident. But there's often times that the Bible tells us In fact, there's a lot of times when it tells us that the Christian is a person who gives sort of a defense. Why are we always giving a defense? Why are we always defending? Last week, we talked about giving a defense for the hope that is within you with the way that you suffer, because it's not going to make a lot of sense when you navigate things in the life of faith. Uh, In the Bible, when things happen, so much of the time, there seems to be a peanut gallery there. There seems to be a group of people just kind of like, you know, what? And that's not what I would do. And are you sure? And they generally represent the common sense approach. Now, here's the thing is as easy as it is to say, you know, ignore those people, the naysayers, the peanut gallery. The reason that's hard for us is because the peanut gallery is usually your friends, it's your peers. How much, I mean, right? we're all pretty teed up to be able to go like, uh, oh yeah, when your enemy speaks against what you're doing and doesn't see it, of course they won't see it because they're bad and they don't love God or trust God. It's, their, it's your friends, it's your peers, it's the people around you who are often the ones that you find yourself going, no, I, 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 need, I want to explain to you how this is what it is that God wants, even though it doesn't make sense. I mean, the reason my friends are my friends, my peers are my peers, is because we like the same things, we act the same way, we like to wear the same types of things. And, and, and I like these people because they're like me. And so when something doesn't make sense to them, what is that about? But the life of a believer is to explain how, God's, how our trust for God is leading us to do something that we wouldn't otherwise do to those that have a hard time seeing it and understanding it. Sometimes this is a really hard thing to do right? Why are you choosing to act when the risk is so high? Why are you choosing to keep trying with that person in that relationship when nothing is changing, when things aren't going your way? Why are you being so passive? Why are you being silent? Why are you choosing to do, here it is, here's the key, what you don't normally do? Because I trust that God is in control. What we read about that comes after this at the end of our passage is what happens as a result of David's trusting in God. David coming forth and telling Saul, giving himself up to Saul, leaving himself in his hands at his mercy. I think I have a slide for it. Oh, Oh, yeah, this is my C.S. Lewis quote. I'm going to read my C.S. Lewis quote first, and then I'll do this. Here's the C.S. Lewis quote. You ready? That's my introduction. I don't know, say mere Christianity or something, even though it's not. Uh, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is the defendant's seat. He is quite a kindly judge. Uh, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is giving the defense. In this quote, what he's speaking to is the fact that we live in a world and a culture in which um, it seems that we're constantly having to explain, make sense of God to people. And that's because we have a pretty high view of ourselves. And so if, something, if God's ways don't line up with our ways, our assumption is um, that God is wrong and that we're right. And so, what the Christian often find them, finds themselves doing is defending and explaining the ways of God. And saying that this is, this is true, and this is good, and this is right, and if, I, if you don't line up with that, if I don't line up with that, then that doesn't mean that God is wrong, it means that I need to be reshaped to where that truth is reflected in my own life. We read this at the end of 1 Samuel 24, verses 16 through 22. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the kind of ending to this that only could come from the hand of God. David didn't defeat Saul he won him over. He proved to Saul, when the stakes were the highest that they could be, you are not my enemy. You are not my enemy. In fact, I'm your servant because you're still the king. This changed Saul's heart. This changed everything. This showed that God had used this pain and suffering to turn David into the king that he needed to be. This is really hard. I mean, how many of us could say that we would handle a situation like this this way? How many of us would say that when given the opportunity to act, that we would not act? That when given the opportunity to wait and trust that we would not choose to wait and trust. It's different for all of us. We can't prescribe it to other people and say, you're supposed to be doing this, you're supposed to be doing this, you're supposed to be doing this. All that we can do is in every situation is to actually get on our knees and say, God, I give this over to you, what is your will? What is the speed that you want me to move in this thing? And you know, hopefully it's the speed we like moving. But if it's not, then to say, do I trust God enough to not do what I would normally do? And do we take comfort and confidence in knowing that we're not going to get to a point where we just set the cruise control and we're just going to coast? There is no point in life when that is the reality of a person who trusts God. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard thing to talk about because... It's just, it's hard to talk about because we so live in a world and a culture and are a part of a world and a culture in which you find your strengths, you find your best, you identify the kind of person you are, and then you live out your life focusing on those things and trying to ignore all the bad stuff. You are not interested in us living that way. You're not interested in a group of people who take our strengths and then just do those things all the time. You desire people who trust you in every area of our lives, and it is usually our weaknesses where we have the hardest time trusting you. God, would you help those of us who want to be in control to trust you enough not to be? Would you help those of us who want to sit and wait and not stick our necks out? To have the courage and the boldness to do that when you lead us to. These are very hard things for us to do, God, but we can do them because of who you are. Not because of how good we are, how capable we are, how strong we are, how impressive we are. We can do it because of how big you are, God. And because you are so big, the results will be glorious, Lord. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.